This week's episode of the Acts 29 podcast is a recording from our most recent advanced conference in Raleigh, North Carolina from Brian Key. Brian gave a great talk on leadership and the future of Christian leadership, looking at it from lasting till the end, enduring as faithful ministers. So enjoy this session from Brian, and we'll hope to see you at the next advanced conference as well. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I'll take my text from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. I will not attempt to exposit this text. We don't have time for that um, today, Uh, but I want to use it as a jump-off point for our exchange today. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. When you found it, say amen. Amen. Paul writes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So I turned 40 in October. Turned 40 in October, and for whatever reason, turning 40 hit different. Now, things hurt that did not used to hurt, mind you. Like, I can't jump as high, run as fast, lift as much. Things hurt, but that wasn't the only thing. I, when I turned 40, something clicked in me, and I began to take stock of my life and, and ministry and consider what I wanted the rest of my life to be about. It, it gave me a moment to, to stop and think and, and, and take perspective on it. I've been in ministry uh, this year for 19 years. And um, I remember when I started off in ministry as a young man, I had a short-term view. It was always the next event or the next season of ministry, the next ministry year and all that thing. And my assumption was that my fire and my zeal would remain the same, that fruitfulness would come easy and that I would finish. Of course, I'm going to finish. I had older folks in my little black Baptist church in East Texas who said, hey, don't be one of those people who puts their hand to the plow and turns back. And I was like, of course, that won't be me. Of course, that would never, ever be me. But as I've gotten older, my question has become, what does it mean to finish well? What's it going to take for me to finish well? We have uh, been through hardships and suffering, both personally and in ministry. We've seen churches grow quickly and fall apart just as quickly. We've seen brothers burn out of ministry. We've seen people that we've held in high regard in ministry melt their own lives down and their ministries down because of uh, church leadership abuse or, or moral failings and all kinds of things. And as I looked at that, I kept asking myself, why? 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 What is it about the ways that we have done ministry and the, things that, how, the ways that we have led that have led to those kind of falls? And what's it going to take for us to finish well? As I look across the evangelical landscape, I, I can't help but see some of our problems in the ways that we have gone about ministry and shaping pastors. We have valued at times charisma over character, gifts over godliness, platforms over foundations, fast and famous starts to faithful finishers, status over steadfastness. Eugene Peterson says in his book, The Jesus Way, that across the centuries, the consensus has been that the nature of the means has been compromised and is in contradiction to the nature of the end. When that happens, he says, the end is desecrated, poisoned, and becomes a thing of horror. 
doesn't anybody notice that the ways and means taken up often enthusiastically are blasphemously at odds with the way of Jesus and the way he leads his followers? He goes on to say that in an undiscriminating way, so many of us embrace and adopt the very ways and means that Jesus rejected, taking up with the world in ways suggested by the promises of the devil, assurances of power and influence, domination and success. And the result is that many of us start, not, but not all of us sustain. And, and what's worse is that when that happens, the name and the reputation of Jesus gets dragged into the mud because we've chosen the ways and means of the world and not the ways and means of Jesus. So how do we change that? How do we change that? My big idea today that I want to set before you is that I believe the legacy of your ministry, your church, and our network depends on us being and becoming and building faithful finishers. The legacy of your ministry and your church and our network depends on us being and becoming and building faithful finishers. So I want to look at this talk in two parts. I want to talk about the testimony of the faithful finisher, and then I want to look at the ingredients of Paul's life that made him a faithful finisher. Uh, you see the, his testimony as we jump into this text in 2 Timothy. And if you read 2 Timothy, it's like a baton pass uh, of, a, of a letter. Uh, the most important moment in any kind of relay race is the moment of a baton pass. And you sense the urgency as one runner is finishing their leg and the other is getting ready to take the baton of that pass and that critical moment of saying, stick. That's what Paul's saying in 2 Timothy. He is looking at Timothy and saying, Timothy, stick. The context of 2 Timothy verse, uh, verses four, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, he's calling for Timothy to fulfill his ministry. Tony left us off there last night, and you can feel this sense of urgency in Paul's words in this moment. And you can see the urgency because Paul sees that his end is inevitable. But this is the testimony from the end. He's saying, I've fought the good fight. I've finished my race, and I've kept the faith. That fought the good fight is athletic imagery. Paul's saying, I've put in a committed effort. Uh, he's referring to his ministry as a fight, and it highlights the difficulty of ministry as just this intense struggle. As a 21-year-old, didn't, I didn't understand that at all. But now at 40, through personal suffering and ministry hardship and sheep bites and wolf attacks and spiritual opposition... I understand it a little bit better now. See, it's easy when we're whiteboarding vision and strategies to forget that the work that God has called us into is a fight. We are up against not flesh and blood, but rulers and authorities and cosmic powers. See, too often we pull up, brothers and sisters, to the battlefront with plastic weapons of our ideas and visions and strategies and forget that the only way to stand up and endure in this work is to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Paul kept that on the forefront of his mind, and he, he, he says, I fought the good fight. And by saying he's fought the good fight, he means I was committed to the end and in, in my efforts, and I used the right weapons in my task. He's done it honorably, and he's met the expectations with high marks and high standards required of the work. You see at the beginning of a boxing match, the referee will call the fighters to the middle and they will touch gloves and he'll tell them what's off limits. Don't hit below the belt. Don't hit behind the head. And he always ends with, let's have a good, clean fight. 
Let's have a good, clean fight. Uh, He's saying, and he's saying, I need you to fight in accordance with these rules. And Paul is letting us know, I did that. He said, I did it according to the rules. I finished my course, which he said he was hoping to do by God's grace at my leaders in Acts chapter 20. But after he said that in Acts chapter 20, he endured more persecutions and more imprisonments and more trials and shipwrecks that could have easily knocked him off track. But he stayed on course and he finished well. He says, I've, I've kept the faith. It's important to see that because throughout the uh, pastoral epistles, Paul is giving us a counter picture of apostasy and, and heresy. And you can see in Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus, he is calling them to fidelity to the message of Jesus, both in doctrine and in their ethical life. These were instructions from a man who knew the pitfalls and dangers of pastoral ministry, but at the end of his life, he's able to say with integrity to his sons in the ministry, I did what I'm asking you to do. This is not a do as I say, not as I do kind of life. It's a testimony of a faithful finisher, and that's Paul's apostolic legacy. That's what it sounds like to finish well. And so the questions I want to consider with you in the remainder of our time is, how did Paul get here? How did Paul get here? And what's it going to take for me, for you, to have that kind of testimony at the end of our race? Again, I believe the legacy of your ministry and your church and our network depends on us being and becoming and building faithful finishers. So let's look at the ingredients of a faithful finisher, if you will. Um, I love to cook. Love to cook. Fancy myself a little bit of a chef. Like, love to cook. And every now and then, me and my wife will go out to dinner, and we are blown away by the meal that we've eaten. Just blown away by it. It's masterfully composed. There's complex layers of flavoring and variations in the texture. There's a, just a good mouthfeel when you're eating this meal. And with every bite, I try to taste the flavors. And I try to figure out, what is it in this that made this so good? Every now and then, we're able to talk to the chef, and I'm like, listen, man, that was phenomenal. How did you do that? And sometimes they'll tell me, but sometimes I have to go and kind of figure it out through trial and error in my own kitchen. What was added? What was left out? What was the preparation method that got us to this plate? I remember being overwhelmed preaching this text several years ago as a very young man. I was like, how am I going to preach this text when we got it? at that point in the preaching calendar, but it dawned on me that I needed to use the same reverse engineering work that I do in the kitchen as I look at Paul's life. You have to reverse engineer just like you do over, over a delicious meal and say, well, what ingredients went into his life and ministry that allowed him to finish well? Fortunately, as you examine Paul's writings, you're able to see a little bit of his ingredients that lead to this incredible testimony. I've identified seven ingredients, and hopefully we'll be able to get through them, but we will see what the Lord does here today. The first ingredient I want to mention to you is that Paul never got over the gospel. Paul never got over the gospel. See, for Paul, his course was set on that day when Jesus met him on that road to Damascus. His, his, he was set, alienated in mind, hostile, and doing evil deeds at that moment. And Jesus appeared and said, hey, no, stop your course. Come to me, and you will be my chosen instrument. You're going to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. 
that moment of transformation grounded Paul's life in ministry, grounded him. You see him testifying about it in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, hey, I thank him, Timothy, who gave me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. He judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. He said, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of the Lord overflowed with me with faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. He says, this saying is trustworthy, and it's deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So to the king of ages, immortal and invisible, the only wise God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. See, throughout his letters... Paul gives us these beautiful gospel vistas that, by the way, aren't just meant to fill our minds. They are meant to stir us up in worship and in gratitude. This gospel wasn't just content of theological reflection for Brother Paul. This gospel was what fueled his worship and grounded his ministry. See, when you're constantly reflecting on the grace of God towards you, there's no room for arrogance and pride. When you're constantly reflecting on the grace of God towards you, you can pass her through the toughest times with grace and because you, you know that the grace of God can transform that hard situation and that hardened person. When you consistently reflect on the gospel, you find freedom to admit your weakness and confess your sins because you know the depth of the riches of God's mercy towards you in Christ Jesus. When you consistently reflect on the gospel, you can walk with patience and with gentleness and with humility with other sinners around you because you're always aware of the extraordinary patience that Jesus has shown to you. Pastor, when was the last time you meditated on the beauty of the gospel? Not to preach, but just to make your soul happy in God. When was the last time you thought in that moment where you're saying, God has forgotten me? When was the last time you reflected that he predestined you for adoption, which means that before he created the world, he had you in mind and chose you and made plans to save you. He remembered you before there was a you to remember or a world in which he could remember you. When was the last time you sat down and thought about where God rescued you from? When was the last time you meditated on how he snatched you up from the miry clay and placed your feet on the rock? When was the last time you reflected on how you were dead in your sins and God made you alive together with Christ? When was the last time that you meditated on the reality that all you brought to your salvation was need and all God has given you is all that he is for us in Christ Jesus, abundant riches and mercy forever and ever? That kind of reflecting and that kind of remembering will keep your heart alive in worship. It'll keep your heart burdened for the loss, and it will keep you patient with sinners and steady in hardship. And even if you do fail, that gospel is good news enough to remind you that guilt and shame do not stick to those who are in Christ. Your call to Jesus was primary before you were called to pastoral ministry. So you stand firm in that gospel and you keep preaching it to yourself even if you fall apart. Paul remembered the gospel. Second ingredient. Paul embraced weakness. 
Paul embraced weakness. Gallons of ink have been spilled on what we might think Paul's weakness was, his thorn was in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But whatever it was, he reports that it kept him from being conceited about the great revelations he had seen about the Lord Jesus. And he's constantly aware because of that thorn of his weakness and his own insufficiency to fulfill the task. And in the agony over the thorn and the weakness that it produced, he said, man, I cried out to the Lord and I asked him, God, take it away. But Jesus said, hey, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in your weakness. Paul's response is that if that's the way, if that's the way that I, I get the power of God, if, if owning weakness is the way that I get to the power of God, I want more of Jesus. He says, I'll boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. Embracing weakness emptied him of pride, emptied him of his own self-sufficiency, and it created space for the power of God to reside on him. One of the great challenges of pastoral ministry is the sense of arrogance that can come on us as we preach the gospel of grace. We can seep in, we can let pride and, and, and status seep into our souls. But people look to us as, as, uh, as men who have the special knowledge of God, and he's, he is the man at times. And if we're not careful, we begin to believe our own press clippings. But God uses weakness and suffering to remind us of our deep need of him. I heard Crawford Luritz say years and years ago that God breaks what he intends to use. God breaks what he intends to use. And it's in that brokenness that we realize that we're weak, that we're sinful, that we're too wayward to accomplish anything on our own strength. The way of boasting in our strength is the way of the super apostle, the way of the world. That we say we got to have a platform, we got to boast on the size of our followings. But brothers, the way of the cross is the way of dependence and the road of suffering. It's the road of weakness. See, embracing that weakness leaves no glory on the table for us, and it opens us up in, for the power of God to rest on us so that we boast in the glory of Jesus alone. Paul embraced his weakness. The next ingredient is that Paul lived with discipline. Paul lived with discipline. When we watch a great athlete perform, we say sometimes, that dude is just built different, right? She's just built different. Now, that's true for some of them, but most often there's discipline and work that they've put into their tasks. We miss that the ingredients for longevity in their careers is built on how they train themselves, how they rest, what they put into their bodies. Discipline is how they continue to work. They live with that kind of discipline, by the way, because they have a singular focus for their life. How much more should we, as ministers of the gospel, live with a singular focus, the greatest singular focus that any single human being could ever give their lives to? Paul told the Philippian church that his, the singular focus of his life was to know Christ, was to know Christ. And in fact, he goes on to say, hey, I consider everything else a loss to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. See, when Paul found Jesus, or rather when Jesus found Paul, Paul burned his resume. He burned his resume. He said, it doesn't even matter. Nothing else matters. I got to have him. And he lived with the discipline of, I got to have him. And as he got into his ministry, that discipline, pursuit of Jesus gave shape to his ministry. You see in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where he says, I don't run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one who's beating the air, but instead I discipline my body and bring it under strict control 
so that after preaching to others, I myself would not be disqualified. Paul lived a life of discipline and self-control because the fulfillment of his apostolic calling was the focus of his life. Fulfilling his mission was the focus of his life. Having Jesus was the focus of his life. And like an athlete, that meant he had to make decisions about what he could pursue and what he could not pursue and how he could go about ministry and how he couldn't go about ministry. For us as pastors, that means we're going to be constantly taking into consideration day after day what we're giving our time to, what we're feeding our souls and bodies with, how well we're resting and recovering, how we're training our souls toward godliness in Christ Jesus, and how we're training our souls to embody the way of Jesus as we pursue ministry for his glory. Paul lived a discipline in life. The fourth ingredient you can see is that Paul worked hard, but he worked from the right source. Paul worked hard, but he worked from the right source. Most of my problems related to feeling burnout in ministry have have been related to trying to accomplish God's work in my own strength. The most tired I've felt in ministry is trying to accomplish God's work in my own strength. And, and in other times, I've gone through seasons of immense hardship, but been able to stand up like I just don't even feel tired at all because I was doing God's work at that season in God's strength. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, he says, him we proclaim. Tony pointed, that to, pointed us to that last night. He says, I warn everyone, teach everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. But in verse 29, he says, for this I toil, but I struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. I struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. You see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Paul says, man, I worked harder than everybody else, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God that was in me. Paul worked hard, but he worked from the right source. He worked from the right source. So over the last couple of years, I, I, I don't like dependency generally, but God has forced me to have to deal with my own dependency. And, and over the last couple of years, I've developed a liturgy. I used to say with shame sometimes, I just don't have it. I just don't have it. But now that's the beginning of a liturgy for me. I just don't have it. But my God is sufficient for the work. I, 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 I don't hold everything together, but Christ holds everything together. I don't uphold anything at all in my own strength, but Christ upholds everything, the entire universe, by the word of his power, which means, pastor, he is upholding you right now by the word of his power, and he is upholding your church by the word of his power. Work from that energy. Work from that strength. Work from that truth and that rest. When we declare that I don't have enough, but he is, it is us embodying the gospel that we proclaim. It is us saying, I'm not the Christ, and then saying, so behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. And maybe you're here today and you feel that burnout closing in. Well, hey, the invitation from Jesus to you is, come to me, all who you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Not rest to lay down. Sometimes he gives us seasons to lay down but he gives us rest so that we can work from the rest and energy that he alone can provide. The fifth ingredient, Paul modeled the character of Christ. Paul modeled the character of Christ. I read an essay by uh, 
Wendell Berry several years ago when I was on sabbatical, and he told a story about European settlers coming to the states and coming to his state of Kentucky, and he said that they uh, they, they didn't like what they saw there. They didn't like the forest. They didn't like the native grasses. All they wanted was something else. And he said, so they just destroyed the land and destroyed the resources and pillaged it. And he says, their problem was they came with vision, but not with sight. They came with vision, but not with sight. And as I reflected on that while I was on sabbatical, I was like, oh, I lead like that sometimes. I lead with vision, but not with sight. And what, what happens sometimes when I lead with vision and not with sight is that I just roll over people and I burn through people and I burn through resources and I actually do harm to people by leading with vision and yet not with sight. Listen, Paul was a bold leader. Paul was a visionary leader. Paul never backed down from saying hard things to people. You remember how he confronted Peter to his face in Galatians chapter 2. And yet, even as he was a tough and focused and driven leader, you don't hear of stains of pastoral abuse charges on his record, do you? Why is that? Because he modeled the character of Christ. Do you remember him saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ? Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Listen, Christ led with grace and truth. I was talking to an older pastor uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he said, man, some people lean hard on one way or the other, and some people talk about living in balance between grace and truth. But Jesus lived with both of them, not in balance, but together, always blended together. You will never find someone, by the way, with a bigger vision for the kingdom than Jesus. I don't care how big your vision is for how many churches you want to plant. Your vision will not ever be bigger than Jesus's vision for the kingdom of God. Not ever. And yet, you'll also never find someone with a more gentle touch in their ministry than Jesus. Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah is pointing us to the suffering servant who is to come. And he, he says that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench, even as he's coming to bring justice. <laughs> and set the world to right. Yeah. Bruised reeds he will not break. Grace and truth lived mixed perfectly in Jesus. And, and Paul says, I imitated Jesus, and so you imitate me as I follow Jesus. Paul modeled the teaching and the life and the ways of ministry of Jesus. He had big vision, but a pa light pastoral touch, a tender pastoral touch. Where do you see that, Key? Romans chapter 15, Paul says that his desire is to preach the gospel everywhere that Jesus is not named. He says, I will not stop until the name of Jesus is heralded among nations. And yet, you read a letter like 1 Thessalonians, and you see Paul talking to that church about, hey man, here's how I see you growing in the grace of Jesus. See your work of faith, your labor of love, your, your steadfast hope. I see your endurance through persecution. You, you bear witness to him saying, I was gentle with you like a loving mother. I exhorted and encouraged you like a doting father. He lovingly corrects their shortcomings, both in theology and in ethics. Big, big vision and also gentleness a la Jesus. He had a commitment to God's ends, and he pursued them in God's ways through God's means. Sixth ingredient, Paul stayed connected to brothers. One of the most overwhelming things as you read Paul's letters is how many people he mentions. 
who've been a part of his life and ministry, the brothers and sisters who have encouraged him, who've fed him, who've cared for him, who've prayed for him, who've partnered with him in the ministry. You get the sense that he had brothers and sisters everywhere praying for him, supporting him all the time. He's like, man, I had people with me along the way. I'm writing you this letter. My name is attached to the letter, but I need you to know that this brother and this sister is backing me up in my ministry. Paul David Tripp, in his book, Dangerous Calling, says that we need a protective circle of grace-motivated admonishers. He says, I've now come to understand that I need others in my life. I now know that I need to commit myself to living in intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. He says, why do I need this? Well, because every day you give personal empirical evidence, pastor, pastor's wife, that you've not yet arrived. Every day you think and you desire and you say and you do things that point to the existence of remaining sin in your heart. And since that's true of each of us, is it not also true that we need to live a willingly submissive commitment to God's normal means of protecting and growing his still being sanctified children? You need people around you. You need brothers and sisters around you. And maybe you're here today and you're like, bro, I am a solo pastor of a church plant in a small town far away from everybody. Well, hey, you're here today. You're here with us today. And one of the things that Justin exhorted us to last night was, hey, connect with people this week. Connect with people because you need brothers and sisters to walk with you. You will not walk this out alone, family. You need brothers who will encourage you. When things get really hard, but you also need brothers who will look you in the face and call you to correction when you're walking not according to the ways of Jesus. You need brothers and sisters in your life. The last thing, the last ingredient I'll point out to you, and I'm in my seat, is that Paul ministered with the end in view. Paul kept the end in view. End of his powerful testimony in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, he concludes his thought by saying that there is reserved for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing, loved his appearing. Now, I am not much of a runner, as you can see. Not much of a runner. For me, running long distances is not a pleasurable activity. I've heard of runner's highs. I've never gotten one. <laughs> never in my life have I gotten a runner's high from exercising. Listen, most of the time, the only reason you will see me running a long distance is because I'm fleeing from something that has not stopped chasing me yet. That's the only time. It's the only time. The wicked flee. <laughs> No one's chasing them. <laughs> Listen, the only way when I do go for those long runs, the only way I can finish is I have to keep the end in view. I have to set a mark out in front of me and say, when I get to that, that's when I'll stop. When I get there, that's when I stop. So even as pain overtakes my body and, and, and my lungs are just tight and I just want to quit, the end keeps me running. The end keeps me running for Paul. 
The end motivated his faithfulness. He says, there's a crown of righteousness awaiting me. And what he's talking about is like, hey, all of the righteousness that Christ purchased for me in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection will one day fully be mine on that day. I'm looking forward to that day. I don't know about you. I'm looking forward to that day. Paul says, I'm looking forward to that day. And in that day, I will be commended for the work that I've done for Christ Jesus. The resurrection hope at the end of his life motivated him. You see in Philippians chapter 3 that it was the end that motivated him to lay everything down. He says, man, my citizenship is in heaven. And from there, I wait a Savior. He's going to transform my lowly body into one just like his. Listen, man, that end, that resurrection end kept Paul going. You see in other places that when he was discouraged from, from the deep suffering and difficulty of pastoral ministry, you see in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 as he's talking about his suffering, pressed, not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, not destroyed. He ends that chapter saying this, for this light momentary affliction. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You want to know why Paul kept running? He said, this is light and momentary compared to the eternal glory that is waiting for me. I told our students at Grimke a couple of years ago that our ministry finds its source in and is sustained by the mercy of God and the audacity of resurrection hope. You preach different when you remember the resurrection. You endure different when you remember the hope of the resurrection. See, in the long obedience of pastoral ministry, we got to live with the end in view. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, that all of our battles against sin in ourselves and in our people have an end date. All of them, all of our wounds, all of our persecution, all of our feelings of abandonment, all of the slander, all of the hardship has an end. All of the relational suffering that we've borne witness to and experienced ourselves as we've counseled people or walked through it ourselves, all of it has an end date. All of the suffering and death that we have pastored people through has an end date. It's critical as we endure ministry, that we keep the righteous judge, our our merciful redeemer, and our resurrection hope in view. He promises, family, that one day he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, because the former things have passed away, and the one seated on the throne says, Behold, I make all things new, family. All the hardship you've endured, all the mourning we've done, all the tears we've cried in pastoral ministry has an end date because of the resurrection hope of Jesus. Keep that end in view, brother. Those ingredients are what builds a life of faithful ministry. Again, I'll say to you, I believe that our legacy, our ministry, our churches, and our network depends on us being and becoming and building faithful finishers, unless you get discouraged. I look at uh, pictures of people who are in better shape than me, and I get a little discouraged because, like, I want that tomorrow. (laughs) But I've told myself as I go to the gym every day, another day, another step. Another day, another step. Another day, another step. The key to living that kind of faithful life to that kind of finish is faithfulness today. It's faithfulness today. Be faithful to cherish the gospel today. Be faithful to embrace your weakness today. Be faithful to live with discipline today. Be faithful to model the character of Christ 
today. Be faithful to stay connected to brothers today. And be faithful to work hard in the energy that God provides today. And be faithful to keep the end in view today. Daily bread for daily needs. My prayer is that God would make us faithful finishers and that the testimony of our network would not just be that we planted churches all across the globe, but that we are a group of men and women who finish the race well to the glory of Christ as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus and model the character of Jesus. So my brothers, my sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Thank you.